Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Over the past 15 months, the Trump administration has moved to eliminate or water down a host of environmental regulations tied to energy use. The administration has rejected the Clean Power Plan, sought to relax rules that limit methane emissions from oil and gas wells, and announced that it will lower national car and truck fuel economy standards. Simultaneously, the federal government has sought to counter state and municipal efforts to strengthen local environmental rules. And recently, concern has been raised that the Environmental Protection Agency might try to rescind the waiver that allows California to set its own automotive emission standards. In today's podcast, we'll take a look at the legal limits to state and municipal efforts to take climate action and at the tools Washington can use to rein in local regulations. Here to talk are two experts in climate law, Shana Sterbin and Carrie Colonisi. Shana and Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Carrie Colonisi is professor of law and political science at Penn Law and director of the Penn Program on Regulation. Shana Sterbin is assistant professor of government and environmental studies at Bowdoin College and a former fellow of the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Shane and Carrie, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Recently, you wrote a series of articles in the Regulatory Review, published by the Penn Program on Regulation, that highlighted some of the challenges to climate policymaking at the state and local level. So, Carrie, I want to start with you and, and point out that the conflict between states and federal government over regulatory power is as old as the country itself. Talk about the fundamental regulatory push-pull, if you will, between the states and the federal government. Well, you're exactly right, Andy, that here we are sitting in the University of Pennsylvania, just uh, a mile or so from where the Constitution was hammered out. And uh, you're exactly right. This tension between the states and the national government is deeply rooted and goes back to the founding of the constitutional government that we have today. And I think it's uh, those roots really in a a system of of government that originally was formed under the Articles of Confederation, where each state was its own sovereign, and then the creation of the U.S. Constitution, where these states gave up some of their intrinsic sovereign authority and delegated it to the federal level. That's really where where all this uh, stems from. And we're seeing a lot of tension on the policy front today between the federal government and the state governments uh, in a wide range of areas, and certainly in the environmental and energy area, that's true as well. I would say that if we fast forward to you know the past century or so, uh, we've seen other ways in which states and the national government have shared responsibility for both uh, energy regulation and environmental regulation. On the environmental front, most of the major national environmental statutes uh, date to the 1970s. And when Congress passed those statutes, it uh, was exercising its authority under the Constitution's Commerce Clause provision. One of those provisions where the state said, we give up uh, some of our sovereign authority To the national government, if the national government wants to regulate anything related to interstate commerce. And the environmental laws were justified in that because pollution does cross 
uh, state boundaries. Air doesn't honor boundaries and waterways, rivers and streams and the navigable waters that are regulated by the federal government. Those, too, don't honor state boundaries. Uh, When it comes to so uh, energy regulation, uh, there's uh, also been a good bit of federal presence over the years, in particular, again, under the interstate commerce power to regulate the exchange and uh, transmission of energy, uh, electricity in particular, over uh, the national uh, and interstate energy grid and to regulate the wholesale markets. Now, even though the federal government has intervened on both the environmental and the energy side, and there's a U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and there's a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, it's still the case that states do a lot and have a lot of authority and discretion still to address both environmental and energy concerns. On the energy front, states have public utility commissions and they regulate the retail market and the prices that you or I actually pay for electricity. Uh, And when it comes to the environment, there's been kind of what's developed as a system of cooperative federalism. Uh, Partly that's a function of how vast the country is, how vast the, the, the challenge is to regulate the environment. The federal government in Washington, D.C., even as big as people think it's, it's become, uh, it, it can't reach out and, and actually oversee all of the businesses around the entire country that are uh, polluting. And it's also the case that environmental conditions can vary from one part of the country to the other. California, for example, in the Los Angeles Basin, has had a long and intractable history with, uh, with air pollution that just sits in that basin. So the, the, the geographic, the topological, the, uh, the economic uh, variation across the country has led to this cooperative system where the federal government, by and large, sets national standards on the environment and leaves it up to the states to come up with the strategies to meet those national standards and handles a lot of the the day-to-day enforcement and oversight of environmental laws. Well, it sounds like that concept of cooperative federalism that you just talked about is also the the foundation of the problem that we have, right? Where is the division specifically on certain issues? Exactly, exactly. When the federal government has regulated, when it does exercise its interstate commerce power, there's another provision in the Constitution called the Federal Supremacy Clause that means that those federal laws take priority over any state laws that might conflict. And that's the way we can get uh, uniform uh, regulatory standards in a number of areas. Shana, you know, tension around climate regulation has changed since Donald Trump became president. Can you talk a little bit about how this issue has changed and, and in a sense maybe come more to the forefront over the last 15 months or so? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Well, I think the most prominent source of this tension has come from the president's major announcement in June of 2017 that he wants the U.S. to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, And just to recap what that agreement entailed, it was a landmark global pact agreed to by nearly every country, um, totaling some 195 nations in December 2015 to reduce planet warming greenhouse gas emissions. Um, This isn't a voluntary agreement. The idea underlying it was that every country would set goals to curb carbon emissions and avoid the worst effects of climate change. 
um, and to keep global temperatures from rising to a certain degree. So even though Trump said he was going to pull us out of the Paris Accord, um, which aligned with his campaign pledges to cancel it and uh, his assertion that global climate action was inconsistent with a uh, particular agenda for the U.S. economy, um, we haven't actually pulled out from the accord as of yet. But this is where the tension has really emerged, because uh, despite his proclamation that this was going to happen, a lot of states and uh, subnational governments have declared that they're still in uh, despite this proclamation from the president. So, Carrie, a lot going on at the federal level at this point. We've got methane rules, clean power plant, et cetera. Could you kind of give an overview of what's going on at this point? Well, sure. In addition to President Trump's announcement that he wants the U.S. to pull out of the Paris Agreement, as Shana mentioned, the administration has also been moving forward to peel back some of the policies that the Obama administration had put in place in terms of federal law or federal regulations under the Clean Air Act that were designed to address uh, the climate problems. In fact, these uh, domestic regulatory initiatives were central to how the U.S. government planned to meet its commitments, its voluntary commitments, as Shana mentioned, under the Paris Agreement. So as you indicated, I mean, there's, this is happening on a number of different fronts. I mean, I think the most prominent uh, is action against the Clean Power Plan, which uh, was the signature Obama climate policy that was designed to reduce carbon emissions from uh, electric utility plants around the country. And as soon as the uh, clean power plan was finalized by the Obama administration, industry groups and states, an interesting uh, dimension here to note as we're talking about state and federal government, that a lot of states sued uh, the EPA, Obama EPA, over the Clean Power Plan, and that went into the courts. And in fact, the Supreme Court issued what's called a stay. It held up the the implementation of the Clean Power Plan. So that was really, in effect, dormant and in litigation when Trump took office. However, the president issued an executive order calling on his EPA to re-examine the uh, Clean Power Plan, reconsider it, possibly repeal it. So that's the first thing. The second, you mentioned uh, a series of of methane rules. The Obama EPA had uh, gone forward and in 2016 adopted what are called new source performance standards for dealing with the emissions of methane from oil and gas developed, but but new uh, facilities and new operations for oil and gas. Uh, that, too, ended up uh, in, in, in some litigation. Uh, the, the, the EPA, interestingly enough, uh, under uh, the Trump administration, did try to uh, delay the implementation of those methane standards, those 2016 methane standards. And the D.C. Circuit stepped in and said, you didn't, you didn't justify that. You have to go through a whole process to delay the rules. So that was sent back uh, by the courts already. Uh, the EPA has done some other things on methane, including pulling a request that companies provide EPA with some information so they could make better policies. Uh, they've also largely just sat on uh, an obligation that uh, arguably applies to them to develop existing source methane standards. And in fact, just the other week, uh, I think 14 states uh, 
different states than Oklahoma, uh, have sued EPA saying that they need to move forward and adopt methane standards for existing sources. In fact, New York is really leading the charge on that. And this is an interesting dimension here when you think about the clean power plan being challenged by uh, the red states, and then you have these blue states uh, challenging now actions of the Trump administration. This tension that we have had throughout our history between the states and the federal government is really, really squarely playing out. So we've talked about the clean power plan and methane rules. The last thing I would mention is that very recently, uh, the EPA under Trump has made a final determination that they plan to reset some of the, or at least revisit some of the uh, automobile emission standards and fuel economy standards for greenhouse gases. Uh, we're talking carbon uh, emissions, uh, basically, which is generated from the burning of carbon fuel. So EPA emissions standards are basically the same as fuel economy standards, but EPA can't set fuel economy standards. The Department of Transportation does. So they worked together in 2011 uh, under the Obama administration. EPA, NHTSA, uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration within the Department of Transportation, and then the automobile industry came together, and with the state of California, too, in the mix, and they adopted a uniform set of aggressive uh, targets for improving fuel economy or reducing carbon emissions. But they said, you know what, we should really put in place in this agreement a little stop or checkpoint so that halfway through the target between... 2011 and 2025, we can revisit the schedule we're on to see if it's being too aggressive or costing too much and so forth. So uh, Trump takes office and in March of last year, already uh, the EPA is making signals that they want to revisit that. And just recently they have finished their process in which they issued uh, a relatively brief document uh, stating that they don't think it's appropriate to stay on course to the t aggressive 2025 standards. And they are now opening another rulemaking to reconsider those standards and peel them back. Lots of issues here with uh, states as well because uh, California uh, historically has uh, been able to have separate automobile emission standards. And now we're back in a, uh, a, a very much a conflict between states and the federal government. That waiver goes back to the Clean Air Act of 1970. California was given a special waiver due to its really bad air quality, thinking about L.A. smog in the 70s in particular. Um, California needed to have stricter rules. Federal government recognized that in the Clean, Clean Air Act, and that waiver has been in there ever since. I think it's been renewed at several points. The question I have now, and it isn't clear that the EPA would try to rescind that waiver, but what legal footing would the EPA have to do that if it were to do that? How watertight is that in California's favor? Sure. Well, it's not an automatic waiver, okay? The Clean Air Act as you said, of 1970, uh, had provisions, first of all, for the federal government to set automobile pollution standards. Uh, it makes some sense to have 
one set of standards for the entire country rather than automobile manufacturers having to build cars that comply with potentially up to 50 different state standards. So the Clean Air Act gave the federal EPA authority to set emission standards from cars, except it had an exception for any state that had its own motor vehicle emission standards uh, before 1966. And there was only one state that did, California. And uh, for California, the Clean Air Act says that if it can show that there are compelling and extraordinary circumstances, it can obtain a waiver from EPA from what would normally be a federal preemption that that would preclude a state from adopting its own emission standards. It could get a waiver from that normal federal preemption and adopt its own uh, auto emission standards. And it, 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 it did so uh, with respect to the pollutants that were of concern at the time, nitrogen oxides, particulate matter, uh, lead, for example. And the, the, there have been, uh, you know, an a number of these core pollutants that from the very beginning, California has continued to regulate. Interestingly enough, just by way of background too, the uh, Clean Air Act not only allows California to get a waiver and be exempt from this normal federal supremacy uh, for, for federal auto emission standards, but it allows other states, if they want to, to opt into whatever standards California set. So now, this is something that we've been talking about is in the Clean Air Act since 1970, but the Clean Air Act since 1970 did not really regulate greenhouse gas emissions. It wasn't really until uh, the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, that California really was putting forward uh, a request to get a waiver to start regulating greenhouse gas emissions. And the Bush administration declined to grant that. It said you don't have compelling and extraordinary circumstances with respect to greenhouse gases in the way you do perhaps with nitrogen oxides or sulfur dioxides, which can, can be local pollutants that settle, say, in the L.A. basin and that require California to have more stringent standards. When it comes to greenhouse gases, these are global pollutants, the Bush administration said. And therefore, California, you don't have anything that's extraordinary. You have the same risks and threats to any other, at least coastal state in the U.S., uh, with respect to climate changing pollutants. And they they turned that down. And now in the campaign uh, in 2008, candidate Barack Obama made it clear that he wanted to have his administration, if he were elected, give California a waiver on greenhouse gases. And in fact, soon after he was elected, uh, the EPA did move forward and California was granted a waiver to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. Now, that came about right at the time, though, of course, when we have this great recession hitting. Auto industry is in the tank and the federal government steps in to try to rescue and bail out the auto industry. The Obama administration did that. And as part of those overall dynamics, the federal EPA gets in a set of negotiations with the automakers 
and with California. And the one thing that automakers were very clear about is that if you're going to regulate greenhouse gases, we don't want separate California standards from separate federal standards. For business standards. purposes, they need a uniform standard. They, we want it all. So they got together and they, mar- they, 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 they negotiated and came up with a common set of standards that uh, the federal government implemented and uh, California, the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, uh, ad- adopted the same standards. And it's that deal that has this midpoint check that we were talking about earlier, where uh, this administration now is saying we need to go and revisit that and reopen, in effect, that 2011 deal. And uh, there are real questions now about whether this administration also might revisit the California waiver altogether. Uh, That's certainly on the table. California right now is saying we're willing to uh, enter into negotiations with the Trump EPA and the auto industry. And if necessary, we we might go along with some degree of flexibility. But they've made clear that if if the Trump administration really wants to roll back these standards in a very significant way that California thinks will not meet their environmental objectives, then they're prepared to go it alone and uh, then in some sense force the Trump administration's hand to try to pull back the waiver. And that will be definitely litigated. This is um, probably going to be a, a a pretty long, drawn-out process if the Trump administration wants to go that route. Shana, you know, many cities are acting independently on climate. Uh, Their initiatives include things such as tighter building, efficiency codes, investments in renewable energy, and upgrading to more efficient street lighting, just to highlight a few. Um, Could these initiatives be limited by the federal government? Well, that's a a great question. I mean, I think as as Carrie, I think explained, and and you guys have already you've all discussed. Um, you know, states cannot contradict federal law because of the federal supremacy clause in the Constitution, which makes that clear. Um, and it gives rise to this idea that we've talked about a bit on federal preemption, right? So where federal law is is going to prevail in instances where there are conflicts between the federal and state law. But one challenge is I think sometimes states and localities that want to go it alone aren't always fully aware of the scope and breadth of where the federal government has had regulations in place, especially when we're talking about complex topics like building energy efficiency and even, you know, efficiency of appliances, right, that there are, in fact, standards that have been set and negotiated at the federal level. Um, So for energy efficiency standards for things like, you know, heating and ventilation equipment and appliances. Those have been in effect since 1992, um, and those were actually designed by intent to preempt state action, but states aren't always, you know, fully, fully deeply into this. So some of the cases that the the cases that we particularly discussed in um, the regulatory review series, um, looking at this decadal example involving Albuquerque, New Mexico, In energy efficiency, you very much have a situation of an exuberant mayor who had, you know, watched an inconvenient truth with Al Gore and got really excited about finding and figuring out ways during his term as the mayor of Albuquerque that he could 
be a leader on implementing green energy and, and efficiency in, in sustainability broadly across the city. And, and they had really focused in on building energy efficiency as one way that they could actually um, step up and participate and reduce their overall admissions as a, a city not realizing in that moment that the kinds of agreements that they were designing locally and sort of, sort of devising their own building code, in fact, might at some future moment be competing with the existing standards that were already um, ensconced in federal law. And um, this, you know, it, it might seem like a little thing, it might sound trivial, but but for for those businesses involved in uh, regulating appliances or creating appliances and wanting to keep a uniform playing field across the country, right? They they do not want to see a patchwork of regulations in all 50 states or in every subnational city or town, right? They want one standard. This was very concerning that uh, even a city like Albuquerque, New Mexico, was going to try to uh, create its own standards. And so um, after communicating with the city that, in fact, um, that would be an issue and, and them sort of continuing to decide to go in their own way with regard to sustainability, um, this in turn became a lawsuit um, that was, um, you know, um, <clears throat> that wound its way through the courts um, from the energy, you know, the the appliance industry uh, against Albuquerque. And, and the industry ultimately won that case because of federal preemption um, that basically said that Albuquerque, New Mexico, like a lot of other localities, cannot set their own standards for um, for uh, energy efficiency with respect to equipment. There are other things they can do, but where they're crossing into the realm of what the federal government has already regulated, um, issues were going to emerge. Yeah, so that case of Albuquerque, New Mexico, I think, is a very instructive one for all those mayors and city council members uh, and, and governors even around the country who are saying, well, Trump is pulling out of the Paris Agreement, but we're still in it. Uh, that's you know, laudable, certainly, and I understand the, the motivation of it, but they have to be careful that they don't run into the same sort of problem. And, you know, we're seeing this on a number of different fronts. The federal government right now is suing California over some of its immigration policies that make it what what Attorney General Sessions calls a sanctuary state. Uh, there's actually also some uh, litigation recently filed by the federal Department of Justice against California for a state law that requires the state to review and approve any federal property transfers. So basically motivated by a concern that the federal government might sell off national forests or national parks for oil and gas exploration. This this state law says we've got to review this too. And the federal government sued over this. Now, these are, these are pending, but it's the kind of federal preemption claim that Shana was talking about in the Albuquerque case. And it's alive and well in other contexts. And when it comes to dealing with climate issues, there are so many potential federal laws that could come into play, not only the Department of Energy's appliance efficiency, energy efficiency standards that Shana was talking about, not only automobile emissions and fuel economy standards that we were talking about, 
But there's a whole uh, host of other standards, uh, light bulbs, uh, federal standards on those. And then the whole energy grid that we were talking about, uh, that also uh, gives rise to a, a concern about federal preemption. And in fact, there is litigation uh, that, that is raising federal preemption concerns when states are trying to enact policies at the state level related to electricity distribution. I, I want to take that to the next step, um, looking at, at, at California and its cap-and-trade market. That cap-and-trade market now has an uh, international component. There are Canadian provinces that are involved with that. And uh, you both wrote in the, uh, in the uh, regulatory review piece that there is a foreign policy component to all this. States may not take on foreign policy. That is the federal government's purview. Shana, what's playing out with this? Is, is this potentially a risk uh, to transnational action on climate, California's climate, you know, cap and trade market, et cetera? Uh, well, one comment I would say is I think, I mean, certainly this has risen to the level of, you know, a lot of political observers, you know, commenting as Jerry Brown headed off to participate in the UN Global Climate Talks in Bonn, Germany, that, you know, he was the president of the independent Republic of California, right, um, and acting in many ways in this role, um, meeting with world leaders in a way that a president might act, right, so as a leader of, of seemingly like a sovereign country, right, as this alternative or substitute to um, who ostensibly should be in that position, right? The the president uh, is understood to be the, the leader in diplomatic efforts. But um, so this certainly has presented a new scenario uh, as to where the voluntary uh, energy and action of states and government and, and state-level leaders like Jerry Brown and, you know, the leader of, of Washington and, right, former Mayor Bloomberg uh, have sort of taken off and, and where these voluntary efforts or even state-level efforts are, in fact, maybe rising to the level of potentially com- competing with uh, realms that are officially, legally, sort of within the scope of what we expect a president to do. So I think, and I think that, incur- you know, climate diplomacy is a form of international diplomacy. So it's certainly um, challenging in that realm, though, I'm, you know, there's there's more to be said about what the, the legal risks of that might, in fact, be. Yeah, maybe, maybe the, the legal risks are relatively speaking, compared with some other concerns about federal preemption or the Commerce Clause or the Dormant Commerce Clause kinds of concerns, probably less uh, severe, but nevertheless, I think uh, quite uh, plausible to see uh, somebody raising concerns that uh, the federal government has the authority under the Constitution to engage in foreign policy and to deal with international problems. And, you know, they don't need to look very far from uh, – uh, to, to in the Constitution to find that. Article 2 gives the power to the president to negotiate treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate. Article 1, Section 10 specifically precludes states from entering into any treaties or alliances. Uh, Now, it's also the case that states have been over the years mindful of and and active in in issues that have international implications. So I don't want to suggest that uh, what Jerry Brown is doing is going to end – 
in court immediately. But I think it is an argument that one could prevail. There was actually a 2000 uh, a case in the year 2000 in the Supreme Court, the case of Crosby versus National Foreign Trade Council, in which the court in passing, uh, in reviewing a, a Massachusetts law that would have um, tried to address problems in Burma, uh, which was struck down under federal preemption grounds. But the, the, the court in passing noted that the state provisions, quote, compromise the very capacity of the president to speak for the nation with one voice in dealing with other governments. So uh, when Jerry Brown or a mayor is on an international stage and acting as the face of the nation, it's at least implicating this potential concern and potential legal risk about states going too far in creating their own foreign policies. Uh, Kerry, I want to bring up another question here. And this all gets very confusing. Um, When it comes to regulating energy, uh, states have significant power, particularly in the electricity sector. States, state public utility commissions have a lot of the responsibility for regulating electric power, generation, emissions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that jibe with the, 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 federal, uh, the federal authority and, and, and where does it stop and you know, where does it spill over in both well, sides? Well, when, when those electrons are spilling over state borders, that, is, uh, that transmission grid is uh, subject to the oversight of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. That's which, interstate commerce, which right? Interstate. And FERC has also uh, responsibility for regulating the wholesale market in electricity. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the last lines that come to our house and the amount we pay uh, our utility companies for our power, that's all subject to state regulation. I, Perhaps in theory, the federal government could assert uh, even authority over that. Uh, I think the Commerce Clause uh, authority is elastic enough to extend to that. But at this point in time, the way the federal government has intervened and, and preempted is in the wholesale markets primarily. Now, you know, a number of states are going beyond just regulating the environmental uh, a pollution out of the out of a utility plant, and they're starting to think about renewable uh, energy standards, renewable portfolios, and the like. Interestingly enough, and consistent with the kinds of concerns that Shana and I are raising in our article in the regulatory review, is that there's a lot of litigation over these state efforts, uh, and and the arguments are based upon federal preemption or on uh, what's called the federal uh, commerce power or the, more specifically the dormant commerce power. There's a, a general constitutional provision that states should not impede uh, interstate commerce. And if they are adopting regulations themselves that place an undue burden on interstate commerce or even more Uh, overtly discriminate against, say, electricity from another state, those will offend the Constitution's dormant commerce clause and be struck down. Uh, The Eighth Circuit uh, very recently has struck down a Minnesota law that uh, 
tried to act as a barrier to uh, energy from out of state that came from coal sources. And uh, there the court said, no, that's pretty clearly disadvantaging electricity from out of the state. Your efforts in Minnesota are extending too far in their effects to, to interstate commerce. And uh, and they struck that down. These, the renewable standards that states adopt are going to be most vulnerable to being struck down when there are these interstate effects and outside states are getting disadvantaged. So, Kerry, what key state versus federal climate fights might be upcoming uh, that pose the biggest threat to climate action at the local level? Well, certainly California is a big state. And so what California is doing, we have to keep our eyes on that. That's going to be a big uh, point of contention. We have that right now front and center with the possibility that the California waiver on automobile emissions might be uh, revoked. So pay attention to that. Uh, Take a look at what happens with uh, the federal government's desire to revisit those auto standards. That's going to be a point of contention and litigation between the states. I think more than anything, what we're going to see is a lot of litigation probably by states like New York and California challenging what the Trump administration is either doing or not doing uh, with respect to climate. And so this is very much a litigated area. And that was why when Shane and I were responding to the enthusiasm that all the states and localities were were expressing that they can go it on their own, even if the federal government pulls out of the Paris Agreement. We wanted to make a point to say, okay, enthusiasm is fine, but also combine that with careful analysis and thought and pay attention because there's some very real litigation risks. And I would add to that, I think, well, you know, obviously it's not strictly legal. Uh, We don't want to forget that states do, in effect, have representation in Congress based on local elections for members of the House of Representatives and elections for senators. So the November elections may very well be the most significant battle lines that we see over climate change. Um, And a significant change in terms of who controls Congress will likely matter a lot if, um, given how much deregulation the Trump administration can potentially accomplish. So elections matter, and that's certainly going to be a battleground for climate change. Shane and Kerry, thanks for talking. You're welcome. Thank nice, you. Nice to be here. We've been talking with Shana Sterebin, Assistant Professor of Government and Environmental Studies at Bowdoin College, and Kerry Colonisi, Director of the Penn Program on Regulation at Penn Law. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Energy Policy Now from the Climate Center for Energy Policy. The podcast is on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, as well as on the Climate Center's website, where you'll also find our policy research and information on upcoming events at the center. Our web address is www climateenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening and have a great day.